Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the commentary, acknowledging the intersection of gender inequity and racism, identifying a path forward in pharmacy, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Our guests today are Dr. Jacinda Abdul Mudakabir, Assistant Professor of Pharmacy Practice, Loma Linda University School of Pharmacy, Dr. Vibhuti Arya, Professor, St. John's University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and Dr. Lakeisha M. Butler, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and Clinical Professor, Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville School of Pharmacy. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks Thanks for having me. Jacinda, I'm going to start with you. What drove the team's decision to write this article? So for me, I actually was an author on the article describing uh, gender equity and sexual harassment, first authored by uh, Dr. Brittany Bissell and um, with the senior author, Mooch Day uh, Hevener. So when we were writing the piece, I realized that there wasn't really, because it was so robust, there wasn't really an opportunity to give the attention to the intersectionality of racism and gender inequity that it really deserved. I actually had a conversation offline with Brittany and Mooch Day about how to best approach it. And um, I talked to the beauty who, um, who has been a great mentor and friend to me throughout my burgeoning or emerging career. And um, yeah, I talked to her about just how I felt about it and um, really wanting to be able to talk about the intersection of racism and really thinking through how women of color are usually left out of those of that push for equity that ends up happening when these calls for equity come out. So um, really thinking about it from a historical standpoint, we thought about the, um, when we think about voting rights and just a lot of very different areas that we do describe in the manuscript where women of color are are left out of these conversations. And um, I felt that it was really necessary to showcase that. I I knew everybody would be reading the gender equity paper about in the sexual harassment paper. And I really wanted everybody to, to also look at this this manuscript is kind of that caveat to don't forget about those women that are left out of these conversations. And then alongside the beauty, Lakeisha has also been uh, such a big mentor for me. And I knew that having her voice and having her insight on the manuscript would really be invaluable. So I started a text thread in July, kind of abruptly after I watched um, LFG (laughs) with um, the women's soccer team on um, HBO Max. And I knew that it was time for us to really move on uh, getting this manuscript out. Well, it's good to talk with you this morning and to have this discussion about a critically important issue. And I just want to take it maybe a little bit further, Jacinda. And, you know, you start off the article by saying the lack of gender equity warrants even further examination to add yet another layer that sheds light on the inequities experienced by Black, Indigenous, and persons of color, which is largely explained by the intersectionality of race and gender. Can you speak to that a little further? Absolutely. So for me, thinking through and and with that layer, that extra layer meant was um, exactly what I was 
previously described me. So it was thinking about gender equity, thinking about how women are left out of those C-suites, how women, um, irrespective of representing a larger amount of pharmacists, are less likely to be deans, are less likely to be promoted. And you know, how honored am I to be in the presence of two full professors of color here with um, the beauty and Lakeisha. But that's not always the case. Definitely in a lesser percentage are women of color represented there as deans, as provosts, as awardees at different organizational conferences. Um, so thinking through that part and really pulling back that additional um, thinking through how women are less represented, but thinking through, okay, well, how many of those women are Black women, are um, Asian women, are Native American women, Hispanic women, and then going through the literature and seeing not very many. When I looked at the editors for journals, not one, for the pharmacy journals, not one woman of color is, is an editor. So that really made me want to use my voice because when I think about myself, when I think about the pharmacy profession, I really, really am considering the future of what pharmacy looks like. I look at my students and I know that I want a better, a better atmosphere for them. I want this to not be their normal. I want them to see women of color in deanships as provosts. Um, in these higher ranking positions. I want them to see women of color get awards and know that they too can be in those positions and that it's not a monolith. This is something that will continue to happen. So that's what pushed me thinking about that next generation of pharmacists and really thinking about how that gender equity manuscript and sexual harassment manuscript uh, would get that notice but if things are brought to individuals' attention, meaning the individuals that are not mentioned there, not mentioned in great detail, then people really won't think about it. So I knew that it was important that we that we explored that. Got it. The beauty maybe taking a step back even further, and this is mentioned in the article, racism and gender inequity have deep historical roots in the United States that date back to the, the passage of the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Can you walk us through that historical arc? Sure. So I, I think the point that we wanted to emphasize that certainly people can make the connection, but I don't think it's at the forefront of these discussions is sort of the disturbing historical and, you know, dare I say, present laws that both intentionally, but also many times unintentionally end up marginalizing anything other than the norm, right? So the norm, the voices there, any marginalized identity, particularly when it comes to Black, Indigenous, and persons of color. So the 15th Amendment, of course, that you know, you're, you're talking about is the right to vote, right? Prohibiting persons not voting based on race. And I think that one of the things that we forget is that while we are teaching our students, while we are, quote unquote, raising practitioners, if we will, for the next generation to care for their patients, we often forget the deep historical roots that have marginalized voices. And we do not teach that as part of our curriculum most of the time, or it ends up being an add-on. And, you know, those of us who do this work, we kind of say that, you know, talking about structural racism is not the icing on the cake. It needs to be baked into the cake. And many times, as Jacinda just referred to, it's seen as an afterthought, right? It's like, oh, right, we have 20 minutes to get this in. Let's talk about the history and Hopefully everybody digests, understands, and we can move on. But 
particularly not only within this country, but also globally with colonialization. A lot of the post-colonial countries are still suffering through this, right? Where there's racism that manifests in the form of colorism through many countries. And part of what we see is this sort of norm that became the Western norm, that became this thing to understand that standards of beauty, understanding political systems, understanding power and privilege, systematically advantaged whiteness over others. And what we really are talking about is calling into question that we need to address these things, not only by understanding what our history dictates, but also by should we find ourselves in situations where we're perpetuating some of that, we need to be firm in speaking up. We need to acknowledge what's happening and we need to move, right? There's no accountability if there's no action to sort of repair those relationships and damage what has been done in the past. And so while I can appreciate that we sometimes may assume people know what this is, I think that lots of laws and policies, so I work in public health and there's a lot of uh, policies that, you know, we ask our students to sort of dissect sect, I asked them, you know, let's look at intention versus impact, right? Sure, a policy can mean well, which is mostly what individuals do as well. We all mean well, but we often have not been, frankly, there's, there's no modeling of understanding how to be accountable. There's no modeling of understanding even how to say a proper po apology in, for that regards, but also that should we understand how this has impacted us today, we need to dissect and understand the impact of what good intentions might be. So policies and programs impact communities differently. And through all of that, we need to understand the history. We need to understand the impact. We actually need to also look at those data that show us, um, and particularly a call for disaggregate data that can show us how granularly, when you stratify different kinds of groups, right, that we can can't just say everybody who's a person of color, but when you actually stratify into understanding how it impacts different communities, how it impacts wealth, how it impacts socioeconomic status, how where's the intersection of all. And I think that's what was so cool about this piece is that we were, we're not saying that everything can be solved, but what we're saying is that we need to first acknowledge in order to move forward so that we can actually have action that has sustainable impact for an equitable future. We're not going to get there unless we first take a step back and acknowledge what has come before us what is happening currently that perpetuates some of that history still and what we can actually actively intentionally create time and space for to have some sort of repair and corrective action so that we can truly have reform within our systems that can move towards this inequitable future that we all hope to have. But we have to do all the work. And in doing the work, it's acknowledging our past and understanding how that impacts us still today. And the beauty, can you speak to a specific example, something tangible for the audience? When you talk about that, what I guess is a disparity between intention and impact in public health, what's, sure. a, what's an example of that? So I think that um, by now, hopefully many of us have uh, recognized, at least have been become familiar with the concept of redlining, which was a policy that dates back in history and understanding um, how communities of color very specifically were left off from es essentially kind of building the communities with infrastructure that would help them propel, propel them into um, a better, you know, wealthier sort of heftier public health infrastructure, heftier financial infrastructure, et cetera, so the communities could boom, frankly, right? And part of what we have come to see is that when you actually, and we've done this with the New York City um, data as well that are, and 
a lot of these data, by the way, around cities and counties are publicly available that you can look into as a pharmacist to understand how the communities that we're serving are actually impacted by disease burden, et cetera. When you look at the historical data from redlining, and this is definitely not unique to New York City, but we've seen this across other cities and counties across the country as well, where the historic understanding of redlining and how communities of color were impacted. Actually, if you overlay, and we've done this with maps where we've overlaid current maps of New York City, for example, over those redlined maps back in the day, um, we actually see that those maps and those communities that were um, disparaged that actually have higher disease burden and um, a weaker infrastructure when it comes to socioeconomic status. They're also the communities where mostly folks of color tend to reside. Um, they also are the communities that has uh, more uh, poverty rates across the city. And so it's no surprise, right, that these sort of historic laws that marginalize these communities still have impact today where these communities continue to have disparities and large disparities. Anything from life expectancy to disease burden to sanitation, housing segregation, education, etc. These are basic building blocks of the communities that help propel upward mobility, that help us understand that if we gain good education, if we have um, better infrastructure, if we have cleaner streets, if we have greener streets, if we have better sight lines, if we have better infrastructure when it comes to food choices, that people will tend to then make those better food choices. All of these things that have been historically um, intentionally marginalized now still get perpetuated because it, the impact is so entrenched in the history of these communities. And so it's really important for us to understand and realize how those historic laws and policies are still making their impact today. And if we want to be addressing these disparities, we do need to go back and understand housing segregation, income inequality, education reform, policing, et cetera. And there are direct effects in, in the workplace as well. Lakeisha, on a broad level, how does the intersection of race and gender manifest itself in employment? Well, there, there are definitely a number of ways, and the beauty has offered um, a great kind of just, um, you know, the framework and and the foundation of, of all of this um, when we look at um, education and wealth building and more importantly, you know, the the exposure to opportunities based on these inequities, the opportunities are typically lacking. And so when we think about this manifest in women of color being sought out for excessive service opportunities to mainly check the box of having diversity, but they're not sought after for leadership roles, except those roles that may be associated with diversity. And it can also manifest in the lack of sponsorship in predominantly white spaces. You know, I can think of just my experiences within the pharmacy world. Oftentimes, white women can come in uh, on a new job and they're coached, they're mentored, they're given the rules of the game. They're sponsored, they're befriended um, because they have so much in common with the other women that are um, currently in that place of employment. While women of color don't have that same luxury, uh, they have to come in and kind of learn the game, have to learn um, the, the ins and outs of, of the organization. And while also um, enduring consistent micro and macro aggressions, uh, whether it's downplaying the work 
uh, that the women of color do um, or seeing them as angry and not professional, potentially due to, to hairstyles, um, the, their actions that don't fit into the societal normative box, and they're also isolated. So being in workplaces um, where now we're finally hearing this topic of racism, and kind of uncovering the hidden racism education that the beauty just discussed, you know, I've been in spaces where white females will bring up, well, what about gender inequities as if don't forget about us, but we have to remember that racism has often been hidden. It's often been forgotten. It's been an afterthought as, as was mentioned. Um, another thought to remember is that, um, you know, Isabel Wilkerson, she discusses a caste system that's been created by society that really places individuals based on their identities into this subordinate or inferior caste or superiority. And women of, of color are considered to be the lowest on the totem pole or that caste system. And this manifest as women of color being placeholders, but not stakeholders. And policies that were just brought up, they were created in the workplace based on this normative caste system. And it's often these policies and procedures or processes are often based on equality versus equity. But I, you know, with my students, I like to go over this, we do this monopoly game where I have them based on um, their name. So if there's someone who's named Lisa, um, they cannot, if they pass go, they cannot collect $200. Everyone else gets to collect $200 once they pass go for the monopoly game. And so we do this for 349 times. And for those that are able to collect, they see at the end of the 349 times, they have significantly more money than those individuals that, that are named Lisa. If we start to make things equal and say, well, everyone now gets to go around and collect $200, we still see that even though things are equal, those individuals who were named Lisa are way far behind. And so we see that with workplace opportunities, advancement, promotions, um, even though we see equality right now, we, we definitely have to be working towards equity in the workplace. So as a follow-up to that, and I'm, I'm interested in each of your perspectives on this because it's going to relate to your own personal and lived experiences. And Lakeisha, I'll start with you. Each of you is obviously clearly been highly successful in, in your careers. And as you look, Lakeisha, at your path, and I'm taking the word from the title of the article, A Path Forward, as you look at your path, have your successes, uh, were you just uh, one of the exceptions? Did you have the, the mentoring? Did you, did you encounter a, a different environment or was it because of work that you had to do on your own, even in the absence of that structure? I'm interested in your personal experience as well. You've talked a lot about the the at a macro level what people encounter, but what was your personal experience, if you don't mind talking about it? Absolutely, no that that's a great question, and um, you know I had to climb an uphill battle. 
or fight an uphill battle. Um, honestly, that's the best way that I can describe it. Um, when I started in my position, you know, I talk about um, individuals that um, white women were came in and were being coached and mentored. Um, I didn't have that. I actually had to find opportunities and kind of learn things and fail. Um, and what I call fail forward, I'm learning from those failures. And, and you know, now I, I have the opportunity to share those stories um, of not necessarily knowing what I should be doing as relates to preparing for promotion, um, trying to just get involved in so much uh, because I want it to be seen as someone who does quality work. But I, I, I definitely outdid myself. And, and there's this, this term called, um, you know, or this, this, this saying called Black girl magic or Black excellence. And I felt like I had to prove that because it wasn't seen as the norm. And so I found myself just really overworking and doing extra so that um, others around me could, could see my value. And so I didn't feel valued um, because I was isolated. Um, I didn't have the, the mentorship so um, that my other colleagues had. And so finally, once I started to um, meet new people and, and kind of network, I actually, um, you know, started finding mentors that looked like me. And um, they really started sharing insights and sponsoring me um, to, to kind of move forward in, in my career. You know, I'll have to say, provide a personal story um, as relates to promotion. So, you know, I am a full professor, but when I went up for promotion both times from assistant to associate, I had individuals within my school that voted against me. The same thing for going up towards full professor. I had the same um, pushback because my work was not valued. When I honestly was doing a lot more than, than most of my own colleagues, you know, and I, I've just realized that it was just point blank due to racism. I have seen the downplaying of my work by colleagues as well, you know, and this is, it's a constant uh, experience of microaggressions, having to prove myself. I've definitely gotten to the point where those things don't matter. I will definitely speak up. Um, but there was a time when I, I felt like I might be reprimanded um, if I were to speak up regarding someone's treatment of me. Now that's not the case. Um, but I can just, you know, I can imagine individuals that are um, not in the place of, um, you know, being promoted and, and at this full professorship um, status, the idea of, of feeling like I, I can't say anything. Um, I've, I've got to really kind of adjust to the norm. I can't be myself. I can't show up genuinely because that will be seen as something's different or not necessarily seen as professional. So I say all that to say um, everything that I said to you in the broader sense, um, I've experienced myself. And so I can speak to this, that this is real um, based on experience. Jacinda, what about you? Similar or different experiences? Um, I would like to first start off by saying that I stand on the shoulders of 
women of color pharmacists like Lakeisha and the beauty. And because of the work that they've done, I am in that place where I feel comfortable speaking up about um, racism that I may experience. I am comfortable talking about micro and macro aggressions because of their work, because of the place that they're in, because of their past experiences, they have made this conversation a conversation that we can have. Actually, the beauty and I met because she came to my school to actually talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So because those conversations are being had, I am able to say, hey, you know, I don't necessarily think that was the best thing or the best treatment for myself. So that's the importance of the work that we're doing to lift up those and make this a more equitable platform and environment for those that come behind us but then also for but that does not mean that I have not experienced microaggressions racism what Lakeisha talked about in terms of having to work 10 times as hard um, in my I trained in a uh, in a fellowship uh, following my residency training and in my fellowship training I was the first black uh, fellow so in about 40 some odd years I was the first black fellow a part of that fellowship program and that's probably some, something that no one ever thought about. Um, and it's not to say that it was the fault of my fellowship director. It may have been that no one, no one of color had applied for that because we are in that position where that's not something that individuals of color do. They have to go and they have to work because of the loans and the financial situations because of structural and systemic racism. So in that fellowship program, I felt like I had to work 10 times as hard to make sure that I created a good environment for those that would come behind me. I wanted to make sure that I did the absolute very best job so that if anyone else that looked like me came along, then they would be a shoe in. Then my fellow my fellowship director would remember Jacinda did phenomenal. So when I see another black applicant, I'm going to give them that same, I'm going to give them that same attention that I gave Jacinda. But it ended up in this place of working so hard and working so hard to make sure I was doing my very best that I really threw myself into just this never ending circle of imposter syndrome. And um, I actually am now in therapy working through um, all of those different things, all of those micro and macro aggressions that I've experienced over my time. Even my pharmacy school career was something that was very hard for me being the only African-American woman in my class. And um, it was a very hard experience coming from a historically black college and then going and being a part of that, seeing that different culture. People don't think about that. How was it moving from a place where you're in the majority to moving in a place where you are in the minority? And when um, seeing the information that we released about the higher roles and the higher um, the higher positions that women of color get in actual in pharmacy. So once they're actually a part of the profession, well, that is echoed when we see that in um, in pharmacy school, you definitely see that disproportion there because and then you see that disproportional rate of student of students of color that are enrolled in pharmacy programs so really just thinking through all those experiences i've seen different bits and pieces of them as i have continued to matriculate and and really begin um entering my career in academia Jacinda, I have to go back for a minute. You you used a, a, a term that I'd like you to define, and that's imposter syndrome. We see mm-hmm. we see it spoken um, of frequently on different ASHP Connect communities, but can you briefly define it for us? Yes. So imposter syndrome for me, so it's feeling as though I'm a fraud or as though I do not belong where it is that I am. And um, that is something that individuals of color are 
have been documented in various aspects to experience this more so than anyone else. And then women have been shown to experience this. And let's talk about intersectionality. Black women and um, other women of color have been shown to experience this more often than their white than their white female counterparts. So um, imagine the experience being a black woman being young in academia, the imposter syndrome that I that I face. And like I said, I'm definitely in therapy. I have been for the last three years um, rigorously. So every single week I have not missed a session, really working to work through those, um, through those negative thoughts and um, learning to uplift myself and create appropriate boundaries, which is something that Black women and other women of color do not have the luxury of doing because we're often in that place where, like Lakeisha said, Lisa has less money. So trying to catch up to our other counterparts. Thanks. Vibuti, what would you add on to what you've heard your colleagues talk about? Yeah, there's a lot of intersectionality, let's just say. <laughs> I think that one of the things that um, echoing, like I don't think all three of us, frankly, are the exception. I think there's many, 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 many more stories like this. They just don't see the light of day. And I think that I, I get very worked up. I feel very strongly about questioning the norms. I do not think you know, those of us who, who in my circle where we've been doing social justice work for like 15, 20 years, we actually talk about how we don't like the word inclusion because it assumes a norm. And then you just get to be included to be part of the table when what we're really saying is we need to question the norm altogether, right? You see this in all sorts of phenomenon, even, you know, Jacinda, you mentioned imposter syndrome, and it's always about, uh, you know, let's fix, fix the women, not really the actual bias, right? Like even that, it's just all about, there are these norms that are set and anything other than the norm is going to be the problem, the thing that needs fixing, et cetera, when really the attention ought to be towards the norm themselves. You know, we pass same-sex marriage, yay. Now that now it's part of, you know, mar marital law. It's like, no, we also need to question heterosexuality or the, the gender normative, you know, fundamental basic things that we're talking about that, that kind of doesn't just say that, hey, we actually have a table and that table is cemented. We just get to play around with who we invite to the table and maybe the chairs. What we're actually saying is we need to fix that table itself, that, that that's the problem. It's not just all of these other sort of ancillary things. And you know, the, the norms don't allow for nuances and for us to embrace, embrace complexity that's very, very necessary and required to move this work forward. As a first-generation immigrant, you know, we say landed in Washington Heights before it was a musical. And, you know, my role models sort of growing up and everybody who I had around me was, you know, largely, um, largely Latinx, a lot of Afro-Latinos and Afro-Latinx individuals. And I think that similar to your experience, Jacinda, in understanding, you know, I came from a very, very, very strong, fundamental, just affirming who we are, celebrating who we are. And I guess, I don't know, there's something also to being an immigrant where you essentially get treated as though you're invisible. And there's there's a lot of second-class citizen, well, we're not a citizen, right? So there's a lot of that kind of treatment that throws you in invisibility and you know, you just learn. I think all three stories here have been talking about learning how to navigate these these spaces with such sort of adeptness that we probably could have written a book about it in all the time that it took us to focus our energies on managing, frankly, the emotions and, and equilibrium of people around us, right? And 
part of the story here is that, I mean, I, I still never have fully discussed immigration. There are very few who know my story because talking about being an immigrant and being an undocumented immigrant, moving through spaces that treat you like words that I cannot say on a podcast is it's very demeaning. And I think growing up in a, in a space where you're celebrated for who you are and told, you know, just celebrated for your strength and the fight in you. I found that when I entered pharmacy in a professional world that was predominantly white, um, I had to learn how to socialize very differently. And I had to learn how to, you know, regain some of that because it was very disorienting coming into a space where you're sort of reminded both sometimes intentionally, but I would say mostly maybe unintentionally through these microaggression and the macroaggression that we've been talking about that, you know, you're not it and, and you may never be it. And so just know your role, stay in your place don't ruffle feathers. I mean, the times I have been told to abandon my passion for diversity and social justice work, right? Pick another concentration. Don't say privilege. It polarizes people. Don't ruffle feathers. You know, the the idea that somehow somebody else has created my identity and put me in a box that is not where I fit, but somebody for their own equilibrium and their own convenience and comfort wants me to constantly be in discomfort. I mean, it is it is emotionally exhausting to be in these spaces and hold space for these. And I think what I wanna stress is the collective that I focus pretty much everything on, right? Which is that it's I alone don't hold that burden. I have a very strong um, spirituality inside of me that I turn to quite a bit. Um, I think there should be a therapy fund for all of us who do this work, frankly, like a collective fund that, um, that needs to happen. And I think that part of what happens is, you know, I feel you just in it. While I'm happy that you have had a much better path towards this, I see that in my mentees and others coming after us. It's really important to me that we don't continue to perpetuate some of this stuff that others have to keep fighting the same fights that were the same point of contention and conversation 15 and 20 years ago. That just should not be it. And, you know, I see my role as questioning the norm. I mean, it is not okay for us just to say, great, now we've included this or we've included that or we've put this buzzword out there or performative gesture. It's actually to say, we need everybody to move from a state of stuck oppression into liberation. Liberation is not a commodity. It is not a thing you allow each other to do. We are all, you know, we're all free. And it's, it doesn't suit any of us if people get stuck in that self-loathing state of oppression. We need everybody to move towards. And why questioning the norms is so important is because the norm dangles a carrot and says, hey, folks, you've got one seat at the table, so fight amongst yourselves. It does not promote solidarity. It does not promote collective. And it says every one of you need to just figure out who the best of you is to then come to the table. and these gestures are performative, they're oppressive. It's also, frankly, a little bit, well, not only unethical, but it's hard when you also have people who say, well, we're diverse now, we have women. And you see those spaces being occupied, um, you know, as Jacinda and Lakeisha have mentioned, is mostly from white women. I think that particularly in our communities of color, we 
want people like we adopt everybody's thing, right? All of us need to move forward, but you can't compartmentalize just gender and race. It has, it goes together. And I think that's what we're trying to say here is that there's, there's an importance in understanding that some of us are felt like we get beat down for what others may consider to be our strength. And it's really important for us to understand that we're using our power and privilege wherever we can, however we can, to move the conversation, to question the norm in and of itself. So before the the word navigation came up, and Lakeisha, there are uh, six recommendations in the article for moving forward. Uh, what areas do, do those recommendations cover? So yeah, there there are a number of of recommendations that we we talk about. Specifically, one in particular um, is recognizing kind of this this self education and deepening our understanding of the differences in gender equity, and, and hopefully we've done that today in sharing our stories and really kind of the historical perspective that was shared as well. You know, it's it's saying that this is real that women um, of color are experiencing different, different, a different life um, compared to our white women counterparts. So really understanding that and, and deepening your understanding and awareness of it. And so that, that takes some effort on, on our part. Um, the other part is developing, you know, mentorship. So we, we, we constantly brought that up the lack of mentorship, the lack of sponsorship for women of color. Um, and, and so it, when you have that, that limited sponsorship, it definitely affects your trajectory in, in life. And we're already starting um, very far in the behind in the in the race. And so we need some catching up. And it really takes that that sponsorship and mentorship for that, um, you know, upward mobility. There are others I, you know, I can maybe have um, either Jacinda or Babuti to, to talk about some of the others. So Jacinda, why don't you take it from there in terms of some of the other recommendations that are covered? And one of the questions I have for you, uh, are there ones that are a heavier lift than than others when you look at the overall recommendations are there some that there's already some progress uh being made i think that ones that i would think are a heavier lift but definitely uh, no less important would be allowing and then allocating those resources for developing the the census of work Force data and really getting to the really getting to the point where we are quantifying um, the data, quantifying the number of minoritized women that are in these different places. And I say that it may be hard because we have to be very particular about how we do this. And as Beauty hinted at, we need to do data deaggregation. We need to figure out where are our nuances. We can't stop in the middle with with discussing the intersection and really navigating through it. Because when we think about Asian women, well. We end up in this case where we say, oh, Asian women are overrepresented in the profession. Well, that does not mean that. That means that everybody that identifies or that comes from Asia is lumped into this one group. And we don't know if maybe Indian women are represented at a lesser capacity, Vietnamese women, Japanese women. We don't know that. So when we develop this data, we have to go into it with that in mind. So not only are we going to figure out race, ethnicity, 
gender, but we're also going to de-aggregate that data. We're also going to make sure that uh, Middle Eastern women have a place where they can identify and not be called white. So we really need to think about how does that data look? How do we want it to look moving forward? What do we really want? To, what, what do we really want it to say? So I think that will require resources, funding, of course, but then also, like the beauty said, seats at that table. If those women that we want to represent need to have those individuals that we know are left out of these normal presentations of data need to be welcomed there. We can't be fighting for that one single spot because then you're going to end up in that place where you miss someone that is of importance. And then also developing that de-identified, that safe reporting for sexual harassment, for those experiences of racism, to really talk about those micro and macro aggressions. Women don't speak up because they don't feel like they can, just like Lakeisha should say. I, she, she's talked about how she had to, to wait until she got to that full professor position to be in the place of, okay, I can speak up and no one can remove me from where it is that I am. And I'm thankful because they have had these conversations. I'm in the place where I do speak up any and everywhere that I can, but not every woman is in that place. And thankfully with the support of my husband. So we need to develop some type of capacity where women can talk about their experiences, where these can be brought to light, and we can aid in that creation of developing um, information and education materials so that individuals know what macro and microaggressions look like and how they can be better allies and better educated on what on how to make environments better for women of color. You know, Lakeisha, you mentioned this as you discussed your personal experience and also, there's a recommendation on mentorship networks in the article. When I interviewed Brittany Bissell and her uh, colleagues who wrote Gender Inequity and Sexual Harassment in the Pharmacy Profession, Evidence and a Call to Action, I asked if there, if there was a role for men in mentoring women and supporting career question. Same question. What do you see as men's roles here? What are the roles for non-BIPOC people here um, in, in this mentoring experience? Men and individuals that are non-BIPOC definitely have, have a role. Um, we've talked about owning up to your privilege. Individuals specifically that are in leadership positions are oftentimes white men or individuals that are non-BIPOC. And so really capitalizing on the power that you hold to, to change policies, to change procedures, um, to, to really help sponsor individuals that you probably have not sponsored in, in the past. You know, I, I like what um, Bettini um, loves. She's an author of the book, We Want to Do More Than Survive. And she talks about kind of this abolitionist um, mindset, putting something on the line for somebody, actually taking a risk and using your whiteness. She also, you know, talks about how whiteness is like the bank. It keeps replenishing. So, so spend it. And so, you know, my call is, is for those that are um, men and for those that are non-BIPOC to really utilize your, your privilege and power. Um, we've talked about how this work is exhausting. You know, people of color should not have to fight racism. We're busy with the 
the societal um, oppression that we we constantly face um, every single day. And so really understanding the fundamental differences in gender equity um, as it applies to BIPOC women and doing something. You know, we talk about sponsorship, but, um, you know, kind of taking it a little bit further and 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 saying, be you know, being co-conspirators, actually putting something on the line, speaking up against um, these inequities. And, you know, we talk about the pay gap within our, our, um, our manuscript. Um, so, you know, really looking for ways to make that more equitable, the, the promotion gaps, the leadership gaps, um, really keeping it at the forefront of your mind. And once again, saying who's not at the table, um, I want to speak up and make sure that they are at the table. So the beauty when you look at uh, gender inequity, is this just an issue of men versus women? I'm really glad you brought that up. I think that one of the things we need to understand, again, in questioning that norm is that this is not a binary conversation. And so when you ask that question, can men and other non-BIPOC individuals be allies? As Lakeisha mentioned, it has to cost you something, right, for it to be real and for it to be impactful. So I think we need to also keep in mind that this conversation is not just about men and women, but it includes our colleagues, our patients, our students who are um, gender non-binary, who are trans, who identify as trans, and there's a lot of important importance here to understand that 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 full spectrum as well, um, because we all need to be in this together. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Jacinda Abdul Mutakabir, the beauty Aria and Lakeisha Butler for joining us today to discuss their commentary, acknowledging the intersection of gender inequity and racism, identifying a path forward in pharmacy, which was recently published on HHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.